This episode is sponsored by the New Reality Paranormal on YouTube. We like spooky stuff, don't we? Damn straight we do. Well, the New Reality Paranormal on YouTube likes spooky stuff too. And they especially like trying to prove or disprove the paranormal. Host Sean and Cody use specialized equipment and mediumship abilities to investigate purportedly haunted locations. Like a haunted mobster ranch. Oh, you know some dead gangster is out here trying to bootleg some whiskey. The most haunted mill in Nevada. Probably some ghostly bootlegging going on there, too. And a haunted antique store. I guess you might find out there's more of Grandma left behind than just her good china. So check out The New Reality Paranormal on YouTube. Link is in the show notes. old-timey crimey welcome back we're here (laughs) christy is here amber is here (laughs) talking about ourselves in the third person like weirdos (laughs) nobody thought we were normal no no i don't think anybody is laboring under that particular misapprehension (laughs) so we hope you had wonderful holidays and that you're ready for more historical true crime because we got some for you. <laughs> We're hitting a milestone because we are beginning another year on the podcast. We are now going to be able to delve into crimes from 1953 and before. Ooh. So it's very exciting. I tried really hard to find a crime in Nevada in 1953 because we have all those new Nevada listeners that popped up. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like nobody got murdered in Nevada in 1953. Or if they did, they were all like mobsters and got buried in the desert and nobody ever found out. (laughs) So, but this case kept on popping up in the Nevada newspapers that year because it was in a neighboring state. And eventually I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) Well, we were, we're actually in Nevada for a little bit of this case. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit, a little bit of Nevada in there. So, yeah, uh, don't forget about the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And for just five bucks, you get access to all of our back catalog of episodes over there. That's over 100 old tiny crimeys, where one of us tells the other one a story, plus our extra extras, which are a little bit bigger. So you get five bonus episodes per month. The old tiny crimeys are so much fun. They really are. Amber, what did I tell you about this week? A gang-ish. A gang. (laughs) (laughs) And a bootlegger. And a stolen car. And bullet holes. And all sorts of crazy things that happened. And uh, two gentlemen's lives that got kind of smushed together. Yeah. crime. And they had some weird similarities, too. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, don't forget about that. And also... You can now rate us over on Spotify. So go over, if you're a Spotify listener, and give us that five-star rating uh, because you love us and we love you. Yes, you should do that. So, Amber, do you want to talk about Barbara Graham? I do indeed. I I think you do. 
I believe you when you say that you do. Uh, just a quick note, I just wanted to say, like, I'm going to be referring to her just by her first name throughout, because she's going to get a couple other last names and it would be confusing. She does get a few other last names. Yeah. So she's just going to be Barbara throughout. And uh, so it's just easier to follow if we go with a, and her first name, which is a constant, while her last name changes. Well, even her first name's not really a, a constant because uh, she went by Bonnie a lot too, and yeah. sometimes some other names. Yeah, yeah. She she had a, a couple different names, but we stick with Barbara just for continuity purposes. So she was born Barbara Elaine Ford on June twenty sixth, nineteen twenty three, in Oakland, California. She was the eldest of three children, born to an unmarried teen mom, and I, I'm pretty sure her father's just unknown. He's not unknown. He was very absent and actually uh, passed away in 1930. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of weird because her stepfather kind of got named as her father several times. Yeah. And so it was kind of hard to like dig into and find the, the truth of that. So her mother, Hortense, uh, made uh, her way through life at that point via sex work. And so Barbara had kind of a, a rough growing up. She was two when her mom got shipped off to the reformatory, the Ventura State School for Wayward Girls. Sounds like a nice place. Sounds great. We don't really know exactly what got her shipped off there. Maybe it was uh, the sex work, or maybe it was just the crime of being a teenage mother in, you know, that era. <laughs> Barbara was then put in foster care, and she herself called the the woman who ran the house full of foster kids the old battle axe. <laughs> and uh, this was not a great placement. The woman physically abused her and, quote, otherwise mistreated her. So we really don't know exactly what went on there, but we know it wasn't great. In 1927, Mother Hortense was let out of reform school. And uh, some sources say she refused Barbara living with her, but Barbara actually herself disputes that. But it wasn't a wasn't happy family time over there. Barbara would later say, quote, she hated me, couldn't stand the sight of me. All she could think of was some way of getting rid of me. Also said that her mother didn't care whether she lived or died, quote, as long as I didn't bother her. That's not a great mother-daughter situation and not a great way to grow up. No, not at all. So Hortense married twice. Uh, but the house really was not a stable home. Barbara's track record shows that. She ends up in orphanages twice, another time in a home for incorrigible girls. Mm -hmm. So we've got wayward girls. We've got incorrigible girls. I'm just waiting for the ultimate, the house for wayward, incorrigible, bad, bad, bad girls. Right. <laughs> her education really wasn't great with all this, you know, disruption in her life. Although she was said to be a smart girl. Yeah, she had an IQ of 114. So, and the thing was that they, they considered that kind of low, even though IQ tests are kind of bunk anyhow. But basically her deal was she just didn't try. Yeah. You know, she was she was bright and she was smart, but she just didn't give two shits about school. So, oh, I mean, you have to think how many schools during all this that she probably got thrown into and out of. She was very street smart and she was relatively intelligent. She was described several times as being a very bright child, but she didn't have any actual education to back it up. Mm -hmm. She had the ability to learn, but not the opportunity. 
That's a really good way of putting it. That's a really good way of putting it. I like it. Yeah. I feel so bad for Barbara because she actually just didn't get a lot of opportunity. She came out of the womb for a hard knock life. Yeah, life was pretty much set up to be a shit show from her from birth. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she went through her entire childhood with a mother that didn't even love her. And really no family that loved her. Nobody loved her. Yeah. I mean, she's in and out of orphanages. She has a mother. You know, yeah. you think orphanages, you think orphan. No mother or father. And so there's, there's something really messed up about that. Yeah, well, and I, and I think that upbringing is going to kind of screw up anybody. And she's going to spend her entire life looking for somebody to love her. Which, in a lot of ways, I feel like she did. Yeah, yeah. I think she really was always on, on the lookout for that. But also, she, she sort of got hardened and jaded, I think. So. Yeah. So, yeah, some sources have her running away from home at age 13, then placed in a convent, and then running away from there. Well, did you see the thing when she was 12, the welfare worker that tried to adopt her? Oh, I missed that. So, when, when she was 12... She almost got the best break of her life. A welfare worker who had worked on her case for several years decided that she would like to adopt her and give her a better life. So uh, a reporter by the name of Ed Montgomery actually tracked down this woman that had wanted to adopt her. And the woman said, The poor little kid never had anyone who really loved her, and she was the most beautiful thing in the world. She was a little doll, always so lively and full of fun. I managed to take her to live with me for a couple of months, but Hortense would not even consider letting me adopt her. She was a spiteful, vindictive woman. I believe she truly hated Barbara. So Hortense saw Barbara potentially getting set up for her life to be good and was like, nope, not having it. We're not doing that. Yeah. Wow. Bitch, yeah. I say. <sighs> Bitch, I say. Wow. Which is why the name of my show notes is Go to Hell, Hortense. <laughs> that right there is why. Because I don't understand as a mother how you could dislike your child so much. You don't want your child. Here's somebody else that thinks your child is a fucking gem and wants to give her a good mm -hmm. life. And she's just like, no, she doesn't deserve a good life. Yeah, exactly. That's it. That's exactly it. I don't have a good life. Why should she? Yeah. <laughs> you should want better for your children than what you have. Yeah. Not to impede any chance they have at, at happiness or success. Yeah, it's, it's really... That's brutal. That is brutal. So it looks like uh, after the, the convent thing, Barbara ran off to San Francisco where she began her own career in sex work. I learned it from watching you, Mom. Right? Yeah. Then she gets arrested for vagrancy while living with an ex-convict at least three times her age. He said it'd be middle-aged, so I just kind of assumed it was somewhere in the, you know, like 50s-ish. Yeah. yeah. This time, uh, when Barbara was being returned to Hortense, Hortense said, mm, no. And uh, so Barbara was sent to the Ventura State School for Wayward Girls at age 16. Does that sound familiar? Because that's where Hortense was. Now, twice during her first year there, Barbara ran away. Oh, I actually had, oh, well, I have a, four times during the total time that she was there. Well, the first two times, and this is why it's important, she ran to Hortense. Oh, and Hortense each time called the police to come back and get her. She's still trying to get her mother's love, and she just can't. Yeah. And it's, uh, 
So the first two times she ran away, she went to her mother, and her mother called the cops on her. Oh, bitch, I say. Bitch, I say. <laughs> Barbara left a legacy as uh, the faculty at the wayward school for incorrigible brats. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, not a very satisfactory inmate, they were quoted as saying. I don't mean that she was a brat. I'm just saying that that's kind of probably the standpoint of the people who worked there. So the staff said that she smirks and struts around and was frequently written up as much for her attitude as for her conduct. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of can't help but actually like her. After she was released, her, her notes for her time there said that she was impossible to supervise. <laughs> Which I love very much. That's an excellent summary. (laughs) So she was offered parole from the reformatory if she would find herself a job. And she actually did. She got herself a job at a 5 and 10 store that lasted for a few months. And uh, then worked for Western Union as a messenger. Probably, I assume, was living in a halfway house or something like that during that period. Some sort of boarding house or something, yeah. Yeah. And she was still likely engaging in sex work, just being sneaky about it as she was, you know, on parole. And then she just vanished. Left the jobs, left the, the, you know, wherever she was staying. And the next time she was picked up, it was for disorderly conduct And pretty much had the exact same living situation you expect if you are a cynical person. Living in a shack at the beach with a man who didn't appear to have any sort of gainful employment. So she was picking up the tab for both of them, again, via sex work. Uh, And by the way, uh, one article said it was $25 per night. Uh, So during the, the time period when she was doing this, that would be about $500 today. Oh, wow. So uh, she's, she's, Raking it in. Regarding her sex work, uh, author Wenzel Brown says, quote, she was unusually active in her sexual activities at times when she knew she had venereal diseases, seeming to delight in seeing how many men she could infect. Wow. It's funny how we can be like, I kind of like her, and then turn around and be like, oh, no, I like her less now. <laughs> I did not have that in my notes at all. So that that's a surprise to me. She started to get kind of pretty bitter against men. A psychiatrist who did a report on her in her 20s said that stuff like this was, quote, to even up the score for the injustices she felt she had suffered. Oh. Well, that's, I mean, when you have a shitty life, though, you're going to end up being bitter because of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to rise above that. And it's something that some people can absolutely do but not something that Barbara was, was able to do with just the extensive shittiness. Yeah. Two different psychiatrists in her 20s, while she was, you know, in, in jail for one charge or another, would warn that she had psychopathic tendencies and that she was very likely to commit violence and only some sort of psychiatric intervention would prevent her from going down that path. And uh, sure enough, you know, she, she got the psychiatric in- intervention that she needed and she went on the straight... No, I can't even... Um, no psychiatric intervention occurred because, of course, this is how people slip through the cracks, is when even professionals say, hey, we need to do something about this person, and society's just like, kind of like Hortense, nah, I don't want to. She's not worth it. Yeah. 
So she later would actually talk about a motorcycle accident that happened sometime around this when she was 18, uh, after which she had to have a, it says in the article, silver plate put into her skull, but I've never heard of a silver plate, only a steel plate. Yeah. And there's no record of that that I could find. I didn't even see anything about that either. It's just she brings it up much, much later, but it would have been around this period. She was in and out of prisons and jails throughout her late teens and early 20s. It was also said that she actually didn't really mind the short stints in prison, surrounded by other women. If you get my drift. Oh yeah, I got some of that (laughs) later on. Yeah. Also, that carried into her life when she was uh, free as well. You know, we really can't say looking back, what was she actually, you know, a lesbian? Was she bisexual? Um, was it just convenience? But uh, it, it seems like she definitely had some inclinations that would be very much frowned upon during this time period. And she's already an outcast in society. You add that on top of it, and it's just the, the cherry on top of the shit Sunday. Her late teens and early 20s coincided with the U.S. getting into World War II. And when you have a war with lots of sea action, you also have a lot of seamen. <laughs> so for a time she became what was known as a seagull just going from port to port following the ships and the sailors to engage in sex work i read up on the seagull thing and it was actually not always sex work so she started doing this when she was about 16 with with the going to ports And um, a lot of the times, the boys were also very young. They were away from home for the first time. They're 18, 19 years old. And more than anything, they would have these girls go to get a burger and milkshakes with them. Just go on a little date. And they would go on a little date, and they would talk about the song on the jukebox or the movie, that The Wizard of Oz, that just came out, or whatever it might be. And then maybe they would kiss a little bit and most of the time they were pretty innocent dates that these girls would get paid to do because the the navy guys just wanted companionship they Mm -hmm. were scared and alone for the first time in their lives and so a lot of the times it was actually really sweet and uh sometimes it wasn't but Mm -hmm. a lot of the times it really it was they just wanted a a date uh, a lady on their arm for the evening and Mm -hmm. some companionship that wasn't a dude And you're maybe only in port for a short period of time, so there's not enough time to establish a relationship with somebody where you can be like, hey, can we go on on a date? You know, I've known you for a couple weeks. I like you. Let's go have a burger and a shake. Yeah. There wasn't that. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of a system popped up to fill that that need. Yeah. And and so a lot of the times it was actually quite sweet. That is is adorable. Oh, gosh. This kind of lifestyle tended to make her more susceptible to arrests. When you're wandering around, you get more of those vagrancy charges. When you're engaging in sex work, you have the vice charges. But uh, according to Wenzel Brown, she kind of had this realization that if she got herself a job, she would have sort of a cover. That would at least give her the veneer of living the straight and narrow path. You know what, though? So I, I hate how your author keeps painting her. (laughs) <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> because in my notes, it says Barbara was smart enough to know that this is not what she wanted to do for her life. She didn't want to follow in her mother's footsteps. And so she saved up a little bit of money by doing this to enroll in business school. 
Yes, yes, she did. That was... She did try to get her shit together. But do you like the different ways that they're painted? She's going to go to business school to use it as a cover to keep sleeping around and spreading her diseases. And my notes are like, she didn't want to be like her mother, but she needed money. Like, <laughs> Yeah, Brown does seem to, to paint her in that light. You kind of get an idea of what his standpoint is on her. Yeah, and I, I kind of get <laughs> the idea, idea of why Barbara switched teams. <laughs> yeah, when, when there's men like... <laughs> Going around talking about her like that, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. So she, yeah, she signed up for business college. She got a secretary diploma. She tried to make a go of it, but that kind of office work wasn't really for her. So she decided to go in for cocktail waitressing. She married Harry Keelhammer. He was a radio man, second class in the Coast Guard. On his draft card, it said he was 5'9", 160 pounds, brown hair, eye color listed as other. Probably Hazel. I'm going to guess Hazel, yeah. And with a ruddy complexion, he was 10 years Barbara's senior. They had two children together, but divorced after two years, and she actually ended up losing custody of the kids, which really never happened in those days. I mean, for God's sakes, if Hortense could keep custody of Barbara, <laughs> even with all of the upheaval and, and orphanages and everything, it's, it's absolutely amazing that Barbara would lose custody of her children. Well, okay, so here's what I have. So so Barbara was still in school and working as a waitress, and things were going okay until she got pregnant for the second time. Because when she got pregnant for the second time, she stopped working, the money got tight, mm-hmm. the marriage got tense, and then Harry found out about her past. He didn't know about it. Oh. And so Harry found out about the girl he had married about being a seagull, about being an illegitimate child and working as a sex worker, being in a reformatory, found out about this whole life that he presumably thought she was just a nice young girl and was like, ew. Um, It's said that that information may have come from Hortense. Oh my God. That's a rumor. There is no proof to it. Okay, no, but sometimes when you hear a rumor, you're like, well, yes, of course. And you 100% believe it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you have no proof. This is one of those times. Yeah. I so, would 100% buy it that Hortense would completely just blow up Barbara's yeah. life out of, out of pure spite and vindictiveness. Exactly. Because I'm pretty sure that's what happened is that they, they were doing okay. And then Hortense comes along and goes, oh, you're married and you have kids? Hmm. Do you know about her life before you? Oh, let me tell I can tell you some stories. I've got stories for days, Harry. So even before the second child was born, the marriage was over. And both little boys were, were very young when they got a divorce. He asked for and got custody of, of his children. And I think that she probably was like devastated and was just like, I'm, I'm not going to fight you because I know that if I fight you, my mother's going to come and say all sorts of terrible things about me. Or that he could use all of the information that Hortense passed along to him in order to get custody. Like, she probably knew she couldn't win. Yeah. And I, I, I don't even think she fought. Yeah. I think she was just like, no, that's fine. I'll, I'll sign him over here. Ugh. Well, here, uh, Brown, in, in a description of her, uh, redeems himself a little bit. She had a flair for clothes, a gift for glib, sexy repartee, a smiling, self-assured manner, and a slim, alluring body. Many men found her unusually attractive and tended to think of her as a good sport, 
In their eyes, she was a girl who liked a good time rather than a prostitute. Yeah. So a little redemption there and also kind of ties back to that idea of the, you know, the burger and shake date. Yeah. Well, and she actually gave an interview about being a prostitute, which I thought was amazing. That's fascinating. Sure, I was a prostitute and a damn good one. Why do people make so much of sex anyway? It's part of our natural makeup, like getting hungry for food. If you want to eat, you go to a grocery store or a restaurant. If you need to sleep, you sleep. If you want sex, why not get it? What's the difference? That is wonderful. I love it. (laughs) I love it. That is her words verbatim to a reporter. And I'm like, yes. Why not get it? It's not like sex work isn't the oldest profession ever. Like... (laughs) Just fuck if you want to fuck. And if you have to pay for it, so be it. I, I like, she had much more modern sensibilities. Yeah. You know, uh, she, she definitely was not a product of her time. No, and I think she'd do great in this era. Yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she, she could go like, uh, you know, I don't know, Amsterdam. <laughs> Live there and... Or even Vegas. Yeah, there you go. Hey, Vegas. Hey, Vegas. <laughs> She got married twice more. Didn't really seem to think very highly of any man that she married um, or any men in general. She, she called the ones she married stupid jerks. But it, to her credit, it's, it's very likely that they were just because of uh, the, the pool she had to pick from. Yeah. So meanwhile, her cocktail waitressing was at a bar that had some underworld connections which led her to run off with some shady underworld type to Chicago, and he hooked her up with some stints as a dice girl at gambling parlors. At this point in time, gambling is the main source of income for gangster types. And, of course, she's still doing uh, sex work and ends up back in San Francisco after about a year, Now, she may have worked in the house of a somewhat famous madam, Sally Stanford, who would actually go on to be the mayor of Sausalito, California in the 70s. (laughs) That I find remarkable. So it was, uh, whether she, she worked there or just knew people that frequented the place, it was Sally Stanford's house of ill repute that led to her longest prison sentence yet. Now, what happened was two criminals uh, she associated with raided the brothel in February 1947. They beat and robbed Sally Stanford, which was an act of betrayal against the criminal syndicate they belonged to, which provided protection for the house. They made off with her fur, her jewels, and $5,000 in cash. And uh, the papers referred to her as Sally Stanford nightlife figure. Nightlife figure. Euphemisms are (laughs) fun. So these two criminals, they get busted, and they paid Barbara and another woman to be their alibis. They wanted the the women to say that they'd been partying all night long the night of the raid. And the word is they got uh, $1,000 a piece for this action. That's about $12,500 today. Nice. That's a, that's a good bit of change. Not, not a bad take, yeah. Uh, so Barbara was still going under Keelhammer then, interestingly. Uh, so trial went on. Barbara and the other woman acted as alibis. And uh, the jury was hung. And so the men were acquitted. Two days later, the DA announced that Barbara had confessed to perjury 
after being confronted with the prosecution's knowledge that she was in fact in Chicago when the robbery happened. So she was held on $5,000 bail. The men jumped bail. She got five years in prison plus five probation. They did find the men got them behind bars too. Somehow she was out in eight months. Uh, Brown attributes it to her having some sort of connections that helped her out. See, I had that she got the sentence suspended on condition that she served one year in the San Francisco County Jail and then remain on probation for the five years. Okay. So she somehow just got the sentence reduced a little bit. I wonder if there were a lot of deals like that back then just because of, you know, some of the reasons we see now, like overcrowding. Yeah, it could be. So... Around about this point, she was uh, hooked on heroin, did some wandering, uh, had a drug habit that, according to Brown, was about $100 a week, which is $1,100 today. So she's doing her best to scrape up money to support that. She did end up finding work in a hospital somewhere. Somewhere else, she waited tables. Tonopah. Tonopah, Nevada. Is where she worked as a nurse. There we go. Hi, Nevada. <laughs> uh, it's halfway between Reno and Las Vegas. She answered a help, a help wanted ad for nurses saying, no experience necessary, we'll train. And so Barbara bought a bus ticket. There you go. See, she tried. She does try. Well, and Tonopah was actually the perfect place for her to keep her nose clean. So she was going there with the fresh start in mind. Mm-hmm. She was actually going to really try for the fresh start. Um, there, It's high desert, low crime. Uh, I love the description. Crooked roads, but straight people. <laughs> oh, my God. And she worked at the Nye County Hospital. She lived in a respectable boarding house during her time there. And she was making new friends and the right kind of friends. It's so frustrating because you keep on seeing her rising, 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 and then just getting yanked back down. And that that pattern yeah. is just aggravating to see because you see the potential there, but the potential keeps on getting just knocked away. Ugh. Well, and, and then, like, so, so after the time at the hospital, she took a job managing a small lunch place, and she was working all sorts of crazy hours, constantly working, and she just realized, like, this isn't the life that I want. So she packed a bag and left. <sighs> and that's probably around the time that she had her final marriage, which was to Henry Graham in 1953. They were living in L.A. Henry also had a taste for drugs and crime. And they had a son, Tommy. And it's through Henry Graham that she hooks up with... Emmett Perkins, I'll just quote directly from Brown, known throughout gangland as the weasel, certainly he was not a prepossessing man. He was undersized, skinny, flap-eared, goose-necked, and shifty-eyed. <laughs> Never seen so many hyphens in one sentence. Right. So yes, uh, I just continue calling him the weasel throughout. So Perkins is the weasel because I um, enjoy that. It actually, so that was his nickname, and uh, one, one of my sources is Weasel by Name, Weasel by Nature. That is perfect, and I love it. <laughs> and it's very true. Uh, according to one newspaper, he'd also spent, uh, he'd spent 17 of his 23 adult years behind bars. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yes. 
So she does some work for him because the weasel had some gambling houses where, of course, the, uh, the games were rigged. And Barbara would go to, like, dive bars and kind of cozy up to men and talk them into going over to the weasel's gambling joint, which is a brand new sentence. <laughs> and then, of course, they would, you know, get fleeced through the, the rigged games. I, I like to say that she was working in marketing. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> she, was, she was in, in PR, promotion, something like that. So it's through the weasel that she meets Jack Santo. And it takes a little bit of a Wild West turn because Jack Santo seemed to earn his money by robbing prospectors, which is, is very Wild West in, in the 1950s. He also uh, had some, some violence in his history. Although it was not known yet that he was the perpetrator in this particular crime, in October 1952, he had killed a grocery store manager in a robbery, then beat the manager's three children, as well as a neighbor's son that was, were with him at the time. And they had witnessed the robbery and murder. Only one of the children survived. One of the, the grocer's daughters survived. The other three wow. children all died. And those weren't his only murders. He'd racked up maybe six or seven by this point, although it doesn't appear he'd answered for any of them legally. And uh, the word is the weasel was in on at least some of them. So they kind of were a little bit of a, a pair there. And these it's important to keep in mind, I think, that these are all older men, too. Barbara is 29, the weasel was 45, and Santo was 53. So they're experienced in the underworld. They've committed some brutal murders and What's the worst thing she's done? She's given some guys some herpes, committed perjury. Like, she's a low-level flunky for some underworld types. Yeah, she's just trying to get by with the skills that she has. And we compare that to literally beating children to death. Yeah. <laughs> so, and she's also, while she's somewhat experienced with the legal system, she's not nearly as experienced as they are. No, not at all. So, important things to keep in mind. Because it's March 1953 at this point. And this is where, you know, the central crime that would link these three together, her involvement gets a little bit murky. Well, real quick, I'm going to give you a possible reason for her involvement. So the police were actually looking for her for bouncing a check. Oh, my gosh. That check was the check that she wrote to the doctor who delivered Tommy. Oh, my. So the check that she wrote for her delivery bounced. And so they were looking for her. So she needed money. Uh. And her husband wasn't working at all at this point. Mm -hmm. So she was the only one making money. And uh, he was using all that money on heroin. Yeah. Because he had a very bad drug problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. I, I can't help but continuously feel bad for Barbara. I can't help it. Because it's like, she just had a baby, and she's just trying to make money, and she's got to support her junkie husband and, and this, this little baby, and the check that she wrote the doctor for delivery fucking bounced, and now the cops are coming for her. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. At the same time, we do have to acknowledge that she makes some poor choices. She makes bad choices, yes. Yeah. Absolutely makes bad choices, but Jesus, man. You know, leaving the, the gig at the hospital that could have been a, a path forward for her. 
in, in a town with stayed. in a town with crooked roads but straight people. <laughs> I wish she would have stayed, but I yeah. think at, by that time she was already so like screwed up that she almost needed more like adventure or craziness because that's all her life had been was craziness. Yeah, she might have kind of had a little a little adrenaline thing going on, you know, Maybe. Ho- hooked Maybe. On, hooked on the high of of just life being dramatic and crazy. Yeah. Anytime she tried to go on the straight and narrow, it was just too boring for her. Yeah. And, you know, like other choices, like marrying a junkie, you know, not the best idea in the world. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what happens is uh, we don't know if she was in on the planning, but it's likely she at least knew something about what was going to occur. We'll never know to what extent or how well the crime that actually happened matched up with the original planned crime. So you get you have multiple people involved in a crime, you get multiple stories is what happens. So there was a rumor in the underworld that a woman named Mabel Monahan had a big stash of cash in her home. The word was it was about $100,000, which is a little over a million dollars today, according to Measuring Worth. And by the way, the currency conversions are really easy in this year. Like I said in the tiny, it was the same year. You just multiply by 10. I love it. I love it. Super easy. Yes. So let's talk about Mabel. Mabel was 62 years old. She was living in a six-room bungalow in Burbank. I actually found this house on Zillow today. Oh. It is very nice. I mean, I know obviously there have been changes in the past 70 years, but it is very nice. And I want to live there, kind of, (laughs) but I also wonder if the current occupants know what happened there. So, um... My dad used to work in Burbank. There you go. Who knows? Maybe you lived in this house. <gasps> no, we never we never lived in Burbank uh, because we were very broke. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I'm totally going off memory. I think the house is going for $1.3 million right now. Probably sounds... Or most recent sale was $1.3 million. So, So, yeah. Um, Mabel had been part of a roller skating vaudeville troupe in her youth. That's awesome. It's the most wonderfully old-timey thing I can I can possibly imagine. I love that. I can almost hear the phonograph music. <laughs> so she was uh, in that troupe along with her husband, George, who had died in 1947. She was now retired and suffering from some health problems. She was partially disabled from a car accident several years back, had to use a cane to walk. She was quiet. Her neighbor's barely ever saw her. She was also very wary of strangers and protective of her home. She never turned off her porch light, even throughout the whole night. Mabel's light would burn all night long. She had floodlights, both in the front and the backyards. She kept her doors locked. She could see any visitors from the window before admitting them. And she even had, she had a gate to the backyard. She kept that locked to the extent that the gardener would have to ask her for the key. She wouldn't even give him a copy of the key. <laughs> no, he doesn't get a copy. He, so, he's got to come to the door. Yeah, doesn't even trust her gardener. So why would this former roller skating vaudevillian, partially disabled, have nearly a million dollars in today's money, according to, you know, all the gossip and whispers? Because her ex-son-in-law was in the underworld. So this is 73-year-old Luther Bacon Scherer, 
AKA the tutor, as in like T-U-T-O-R, mm-hmm. someone who teaches people things. Did you note age is there? Because she's 62 and she's his mother-in-law and he's 73. <laughs> but I think that might be part of the reason that they became friends. They're the same generation. Yeah. Yeah. So Wikipedia has him as, quote, an American businessman, real estate investor, and poet. He was the poet laureate of Nevada in 1950. Wow. Yeah. His investments tended to be, of course, in the uh, casino sector. He also, uh, he named his son Lord and passed his middle name on to him. So his son was Lord Bacon. (laughs) I kind of love that. I kind of do too. So uh, I'm going to combine his actual name, Luther Bacon Scherer, with his nickname Tudor. And I'm going to call him Bacon Tudor. Okay, I'm good with that. We've got the weasel and we've got Bacon Tudor. Let's do it. So the gossip, I'm going to get so hungry. I'm hungry now. (laughs) I skipped breakfast. Oh, crap. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> and there was bacon in that breakfast. Let's text Jackson and make us some bacon. Yeah. The gossip was that Bacon Tudor had stashed some of his ill-gotten gains at his ex-mother-in-law's house, so in Mabel's home, to keep them from the IRS because the government was trying to pin him down for tax evasion. Well, okay, so here's the thing of why this is believable. So that was his house first. He lived there with Mabel's daughter, Mm -hmm. and then when her daughter remarried and moved to, I believe, New York, um, Mabel moved in. And so he still had, like, a closet full of suits, and it was still, like, a stopping point when he was in town. So it was believable because he did still go there pretty often. Yeah, and he would actually take Mabel out to dinner. Yeah. Or to the movies or whatever. You know, whenever he was in town, when he went out somewhere, he would have Mabel on his arm as his ex-mother-in-law. Just so weird, but cool. It's very cute and sweet. It is. In a in a underworld type way. Once again, this episode is sponsored by the New Reality Paranormal on YouTube. I love watching something that just gives me that shiver down my back. Like the New Reality Paranormal on YouTube? Absolutely. On the New Reality Paranormal, paranormal investigators Sean and Cody go to purportedly haunted locations and then use specialized equipment and mediumship abilities to prove or disprove the paranormal. With over 19,000 subscribers, the New Reality Paranormal is out there finding out the truth behind the spooky. Going on location, they investigate all kinds of places, checking out the most haunted spots with the most bonkers paranormal activity. So check out the new reality Paranormal on YouTube. Link is in the show notes. In some versions of the rumors, there were also jewels in the stash at Mabel Monahan's house. So this is the target. Now we need to round out the gang. So in addition to the Weasel and Santo and Barbara Graham, there were two more. There were John True and also Baxter McCoy Shorter, a safecracker. Gotta have that safecracker in there. It's very Ocean's Eleven. It is very Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) Yeah. It really is. The plan was hatched at a dinner in the Weasel's gambling house with the whole assembled gang, although it's said that Shorter 
initially was hesitant to agree to Barbara's presence, or uh, rather, he didn't want a dame in on it. But uh, Perkins was like, well, we need her, and uh, we'll see why right here. But, okay, so my, my description of John True, because, like, all the rest are experienced thieves and safe crackers and have all these cool things, and then John True's description, a dull-witted deep-sea diver who is down on his luck. Yeah. What? We have some real characters in here. We've got somebody who robs prospectors. We've got somebody, who a, a, a dim-witted deep-sea diver. We've got right. Bacon Tudor who goes out on the town with his ex-mother-in-law who's 11 years his junior. This is really a cast of characters. <laughs> it really is. It's worthy of Hollywood. And it will be. <laughs> it will be. Yeah. And then, like, somebody looks at Barbara like, why are you here? And she's like, I'm the dame. I'm the dame. We need a dame on our gang. So, the next day after this meeting, on March 9th, 1953, Mabel Monahan is in her home. Her daughter, Iris, had just left to return home to New York after visiting for a few weeks. Mabel is sitting in the living room, reading a mystery novel entitled The Purple Pony Murders. I could never find anything on this because when you Google it, it's just associated with articles about this case. <laughs> I need to find this book. You can go ahead and look if you want. So, because that sounds awful, and I, I need <laughs> I it. What is it about? I don't. The Purple Pony Murders. It's got to be like Purple Pony is the name of a, a gangster, or it sounds like a children's book. It's not. It's available on hardcover. Oh, okay. I did not look deep enough. Apparently, <laughs> The Purple Pony Murders by Sydney A. Porcelain. It seems like it was not in big su supply. It was probably like the drugstore mystery novel. Sort of like the dime novel of the 50s. Yeah. I think that's what it was. I was like, I'm, I'm just picking up my prescription. I'm going to take this mystery novel, too, and take some NyQuil, see what happens. Okay, so after some extensive digging, we could not find a, a good description of the Purple Pony murders. So Amber is probably right now on the checkout page buying it. And uh, we'll maybe uh, talk about that in a tiny or something over on the Patreon. <laughs> I know. I have to find the one that had it for $11, though. I'm not going to spend $40 on it. Yeah, or 90 or 150 as it is on a couple places. Yeah, I'm not doing that. So yeah. <laughs> uh, i got to find the cheapest one. So she's reading this mystery novel, and uh, the gang puts their plan into action. Barbara Graham knocked on Mabel Monaghan's door and asked to use the phone, saying she'd had some car trouble. So, you know, that old gambit. Which is, as you can see, the reason that they needed a dame, because Mabel Monaghan was not going to open the door to the weasel. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, if you, I feel like if you have a person that goes by the weasel show up at your door, you're not going to open the door at Pre all. Pretty much, yeah. And so Mabel let Barbara in, and the rest of the gang followed. Blood stains did show that Mabel was attacked almost immediately after opening the door. There was blood, like, right there in the entry. So uh, we have a couple versions that come out because of who talks to the police first. The first version that gets out is Baxter McCoy Shorters, the safecracker. So this version tends to be the standard. The gangsters tortured Mabel, gagged her pistol-whipped her, and ransacked the house to the point of utter destruction. 
looking for the money. I mean, they ripped apart furniture, they ripped up carpeting, they tore open mattresses. Uh, but of course, you know, Shorter said it, he hadn't wanted to be part of any actual murder. It was just supposed to be a robbery. The murder just happened. Also in Shorter's version, he bravely stood up to the weasel and tried to help Mabel Monaghan by insisting they remove the gag since she was struggling to breathe. So stories conflict on whether Shorter even mentioned Barbara was there when he told his versions to the cops. Mm -hmm. So then John True got his version out there. In his version, Barbara was a lot more active. She started pistol whipping Mabel Monaghan the second they walked in the door. And then Barbara kept on egging everybody else on, pushing them to, to get violent with Mabel. Barbara covered Mabel's head with a pillowcase. And Barbara had helped put Mabel in the closet. She hadn't done the, the final act that took Mabel's life, though, which was a pretty brutal. Uh, she was either garroted with picture hanging wire or strangled with a strip of a bed sheet and then left for dead. I, the bed sheet tends to pop up more in the you know contemporary accounts, the, the accounts of the day. So I kind of tend to think that was more likely. Also, it's just it's just handy. I mean, yeah. So, uh, a gravel-voiced man, as the papers called him, made an anonymous call for help afterwards from a service station on Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. Bully. Sunset Bully. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <sighs> on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood which is about 20 to 30 minutes from the murder scene. Well, with today's traffic. Who the hell knows back then? Yeah. <laughs> but he gave the operator the address, not the actual location. He didn't say Burbank. So they looked in the, the, the operators looked in the LA directory, saw no such address, and thus sent no ambulance. They did some send someone out to the service station, it looked like. But the people at the service station didn't really pay any attention to who was using the phone. So that wasn't really helpful. Yeah. And it's such a shame, too, because had he said Burbank, Mabel may have survived. She might have. Yeah. She was found two days later by her gardener. Uh, he had come by to ask for the key to the back gate and saw that the front door was unlocked, which immediately had to pop up a red flag considering, you know, what he knew of Mabel he saw blood all over the floor and the walls. And this from the Valley Times. He followed the grim trail until he saw the body lying face down, half in and half out of a closet in the hallway. Mrs. Monahan was clad in a blue polka dot dress and sweater. Her hands were lashed together with blood-stained strips of sheet, and another strip was about her throat. The cause of death was found to be asphyxiation. And the cops at one point thought that because of how viciously she'd been beaten, it was done by someone, quote, who had a personal interest in seeing her suffer. I mean, that says something right there about the mentality of the person who did the, the beating here. So the gang scatters to the wind, but Barbara stays with Weasel and Santo. And once word gets out about the murder... The police are trying to figure out why this happened. You know, what was the motive? The house had been ransacked to the point that it was practically dismantled, but they can't figure out anything that's missing. In fact, 
there's a purse in the very closet where Mabel was found that contains, depending on which account you read, $100, $500, or $15,000. So... See, I think I have a different one. Hold on. Uh, $474 yeah, is mine. It was, it was different in every single article. There was absolutely no constancy with how much the money was. So the police, seeing that these valuables were left, they at first think that maybe the murderers were looking for some kind of paper or document that Mabel might have had. Well, and that's really what it seems like. The place has been ransacked, obviously. So somebody is looking for something. But then you find, like, jewelry and cash, and it's still there. And it's like, so this wasn't a robbery? And it's right, you know, in a place where the, the murderers had been because they stashed Mabel half in and half out of that closet. And it was, like, hanging on a hook. Yeah. In the closet. <laughs> they also can't figure out who might have done this because there's no sign of forced entry and Mabel, they thought, would have only let someone in if she knew them really well. Every door and window except for the front door was locked. So at first they're looking for someone she knows. They start looking for a white-haired man who supposedly had been seen, quote, staggering and mumbling something outside of Mrs. Monaghan's home late Monday evening when she was presumably killed. This person was said to be an elderly boyfriend of Mabel's. But the same article said that the possibility that Mrs. Monaghan was the center of a gambler's war was ruled out by police as an absurdity. Well, maybe you might want to look more at the absurdity sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it takes a few days for anybody to be able to get in touch with Bacon Tudor, Mabel's ex-son-in-law. And when they do, the, quote, fabulous Las Vegas gambler is at his Palm Springs hideaway because, of course, he is. And he says, I don't know a damn thing about the murder of my former mother-in-law. It's a hideous crime. The news of it knocked me out. I can't understand it. It's so damn complicated. He considered her his own mother. And, uh, you know, that's when he said, hey, I used to go out to the theater, go out to eat, and then take her with me. We were, we were great pals. And the reason he'd been silent and unavailable, because he was dealing with his own health, health issues. His health had been poor ever since his present wife, who has sued for separate maintenance and is expecting a baby next month, shot him last August. Oh, yeah. there's that. He definitely has a good alibi. <laughs> the papers said that it was an accident. The, uh, the wife was playing with, with the 38 caliber revolver and didn't know it was loaded. Shot him in the leg. No charges were filed. He was also 45 years her senior. There's all these accidental shootings, and there was quite a few in the tiny as well. Just everything's an accident. Yeah, people just shooting left and right. No, nobody has any sense of gun safety, apparently. Yeah. Or it's a good cover story. <laughs> but it was an accident. Of course I was just playing around with this gun. I, of course I didn't know it was loaded. This might be the reason that nowadays we have the whole thing that, you know, treat every gun like it's loaded. Yeah. So, he ran into my knife. <laughs> Ten times. Oh, and also Bacon Tudor would be 50 years the senior of his next wife, who would be number four. Oh, God. He's a guy, so. He reminds me of, of the, uh, I don't know, the best thing about high school girls. 
They stay the same age. I keep getting older. They stay the same age. That is basically, yes, he is Matthew McConaughey's character. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) Gross. Yes. Gross bacon tutor. Gross bacon tutor. And meanwhile, Mabel's daughter, bacon tutor's ex-wife, Iris, is putting up a $5,000 reward for information leading to the killer or killers. $50,000 $50,000 today. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty decent chunk of change. So when the detectives find out about the anonymous call that had been made from the service station, they changed their mind about the idea that it, the murder might have been committed by someone who knew her well. Because that call indicated that both Mabel was alive when the killer or killers left, and that the caller must have been certain that she wouldn't be able to identify him. Otherwise, why make the call? Yeah. So this is really the first big clue in the case that helps them kind of narrow down a little bit more who it might have been. So about a week later, they do a roundup of several suspects with gangster ties. The only one they pick up who was part of the murder was Baxter Shorter, They do lie detector tests, which were bullshit then and are bullshit now, but were less considered bullshit then than they are now. And the results are that the men are withholding evidence, none more so than Baxter Shorter, who was actually the only one to refuse the test. I honestly, if I I was ever asked to take a lie detector test, I would say absolutely not. If it's not good enough for the courts, it's not good enough for me. Yeah. But Shorter does fold pretty quickly. He talks to the police, tells them his version that we covered earlier, which, like I said, may or may not contain Barbara's participation and definitely tries to keep as much of the blame off of him as possible. But basically, they're still trying to put up the appearance that he kept his lips zipped and didn't say a word. And so all the men are released, including Shorter. Some sources claim he had no police protection, and that was true, but it was probably by choice. The police, at least, their version of this is they say they offered him protection, and he said, nah, I have a gun, I'll be fine. I mean, his type really doesn't like cops and want them, you know, watching him 24-7, even if it's for protection anyhow. But, but also think of it this way, so they're keeping it a secret that he squealed. If he suddenly has a bunch of cops around him all the time, it's pretty obvious that he squealed. Yeah. You're putting a neon sign on yourself. Exactly. So he's like, no, don't do that. Or if you do, make it so I don't know it. And then that way my friends won't either. Or they'll think you're just checking me out or following me around or something. Like, one would be okay to just drive by every once in a while. But you can't just have people sitting there. Exactly. Exactly. So it's kind of quiet for a few weeks. And then in, uh, in mid-April, there's another arrest. Actually, poor Iris, Mabel's daughter, is having, she's having a bad couple weeks. They arrest her husband for DUI after a domestic disturbance. The cops were called because both were drunk and fighting because she wanted to stay at her mother's house and he wanted to go to some swanky apartments. He got out, I think the next day, and then reported her missing because he went to the swanky apartment and it had been ransacked and he was missing $100,000 of jewelry and his wife. But she was actually safe and sound either at her mother's home or a friend's house. Sources very wildly. 
And then he's also calling the police because he's certain that he'll be the next one in the family to be murdered. Oh, it's just a family thing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that same day, they brought John Truin, you know, the... Uh, Dim-witted deep-sea diver. Yes, they also arrest him in the bathtub. I love when that happens. It's, it, it happens at a much higher proportion than you would expect. It really does. <laughs> Like, I don't know if we just don't talk about it anymore and we're still just arresting naked people all the time. Yeah. So this is when the papers start saying the mystery has been solved. And also the very first time that the papers ever mention a woman's involvement. And John True is also insisting that he wasn't even in Burbank the night of the murder. So the man and woman hunt begins. Police are also trying to tie them to basically every jewel heist and murder and what the hell dog napping that's happened in the last decade. <laughs> they're like, we think they're attached to this case and that case and they've done this and that and the other thing. They're really trying to, you know, get their caseload taken care of just with this little the little gang. So as soon as word is out that there's a dragnet for the suspects and uh, their names get into the paper, the weasel kidnaps Baxter Shorter from his home at gunpoint. Uh, his wife gives an account of the kidnapping. He pointed the gun at us and said, Let's go, Baxter. I grabbed a thirty thirty rifle we had in the room and followed them into the hall. But Perkins pointed the gun at my husband's head and said, Get back in the apartment or Baxter's going to die right here. His wife really hopped too. <laughs> she, was, she was on it. So uh, the weasel drags Shorter off, and that is the last time anyone ever sees him alive. Or dead, even. His wife then ran down the street screaming, and uh, Barbara would eventually state that, yeah, he's, he's pretty much dead. And she, before she stated it outright, she sure as hell implied it. And officially, Baxter Shorter would finally be declared dead in 1960. It takes seven years to declare someone dead in a disappearance like that. It can be longer depending on the circumstances, but I think seven years is the minimum. Well, and I, I feel like I, I saw somewhere that they actually had asked like, the girlfriend had asked Barbara, like, what happened to him? And she goes, the man on the moon would know better than I do. She has some really fascinating quotes. Yeah. She's like, I don't know. <laughs> so this is really the exact wrong move to make. Once again, some poor choices. We don't know it, it, the extent of Barbara's involvement in this kidnapping, but it did lead the FBI to get in on the action. Hooray! Yeah, I mean, it's not that they're the most efficient or greatest government agency, uh, but that's just more resources, essentially, being used to hunt down this trio. They also uh, get closer to tying Santo to the murder of the grocer and the three children that had happened the previous year. The sheriff has some fun quotes in the paper. He says, the case is getting hotter and hotter all the time. Another time he says, this case is really popping. <laughs> Another character here. Takes about three weeks, but eventually the authorities capture the trio. There's some accounts that there was a gun battle, but others say that the police busted into the apartment while all three were naked. Yeah, I saw the naked thing and um, that, that Barbara was actually with not the weasel. With Santo, yeah. Yeah, and so it was like... And Santo was, uh, you know, his, his flagpole was, was really raised. Yeah, so... Because uh, it was like, she, and she rose naked from the bed where she was with Santo. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. But then the weasel comes out of the bathroom naked. 
So we don't know exactly what was going on there. We can name a few acts. <laughs> I feel like there was a reason that the three of them stuck together. Maybe, yes. Uh, and then when... <laughs> When they arrested them, the police looked at Santo and they said, put some shorts on, man, you're embarrassing us. And it's like, wait, you busted in on me naked. I didn't walk into your... I was here first. Yeah. I didn't walk into your station, you know, <laughs> fully naked and erect. Um, so, yeah, it's quite the picture, quite, quite the picture. And the reason that they got caught was Barbara's heroin addiction, she had arranged a buy with her heroin dealer, and there was an undercover narcotics squad officer right there. So she gets followed and basically leads the cops to their hideout. They're arrested. They're taken in. Informants are placed in with each of them to try and, you know, weasel out some info. <laughs> now, the men know better than to talk. But Barbara, they're together. They have each other. Yeah. Barbara's on her own, and she is lonely. And she also didn't really seem to, to know better. She was a little, maybe a little bit more trusting than she should have been. She hooked up in the jail with a 20-year-old who was in jail for a year for um, driving under the influence of barbiturates, a name I could never spell on, right on the first try. There's that second R there that you don't expect. An unexpected R. Because it's spelled barbiturates, if oh. you're going to pronounce it like, oh, okay. you know. I thought you were talking called. about the inmate's name. I was like, Donna oh. Prow? No, that was an easy one. I, got, <laughs> I was I'm, I'm really good confused. <laughs> I'm good there. No, it's barbiturates. So the this DUI she'd gotten, she had been high on barbiturates and killed a woman in a crash. And uh, Donna Prow, the woman, she her husband had also been left with severe injuries. And so she was... In the process of getting divorced, the two bond, they talk, they probably have some pillow fights, and they also give each other some little nicknames. Barbara is Mommy, and Donna, are you, are you guys ready for this? I don't think you're ready. If you're not sitting down, sit down. Because Donna is Sweet Candy Pants. Mommy and Sweet Candy Pants. Yep. Yep. That's what we're dealing with. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot to make Amber uncomfortable. I well, think or more well, than anything, it's the mommy. Not mm -hmm. gonna lie, like sweet candy pants. That's fine. I mean, I've called people pumpkin tits, so like I'm <laughs> I'm not opposed to that. But mommy, mommy is uncomfortable. Like mama. All right, doesn't make me. Mommy makes me uncomfortable because at the time she had like what a one and a half year old son. Mm -hmm. Mommy makes me uncomfortable in this situation. Yeah, I in just, this context of a, of a of a lover calling someone that would ah yes no yes. don't like it. All right, no. so all right ways we can make Amber uncomfortable. We can have uh, someone in a relationship refer to somebody else as mommy. Or we can say, gird your loins. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> if, if anybody is trying to gird my loins and shouts out, mommy, <laughs> I'm never speaking to them again. <laughs> I'll make sure never to do that. I like, don't know how that, I would. That but... is a relationship ender right there. Like, I, I feel like if anyone ever called me mommy 
while in bed, like, done. Done. Get out of my house. <laughs> don't ever fucking talk to me again. I don't even care if it's my husband. If somebody calls me mommy, done. It's over. <laughs> because I have kids that call me mommy. And no, like, that's like a mental thing that would just be like, ew. <laughs> don't ever touch me again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is uncomfortable. All right, let's talk more about sweet candy pants. Yeah. Well, on the subject of nicknames, Barbara gets the nickname from the press. Bloody Babs. That's right. The prosecution offers John True immunity if he'll testify. And at that point, Barbara is just scared as all hell. Because if True testifies, there's a, you know, they, they have somebody who was there who can tell the whole story. And there's also the prospect of getting the gas chamber. And it's getting more and more likely all the time. So, Sweet Candy Pants, I'm calling her that throughout, by I'm, the I'm way. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm probably going to choose a nickname for the subtitle of this episode, but I'm not sure if it's going to be Bacon Tudor or Sweet Candy Pants. Sweet Candy Pants. Probably Sweet Candy Pants, yeah. So, Sweet Candy Pants offers her an out. She knows a guy who will provide a fake alibi. And Barbara is all for this, even though she's literally seen it completely fall apart from the other side. Yeah. When she was arrested for perjury. Right. She knows all the ways that this can go wrong, and she knows them intimately. And yet she still jumps at the chance. I got this friend, Sam. Okay. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, count me in. So the alibi will be that Barbara was at a hotel with this guy, Sam, for the days before and the day of, and then after the murder. And Sam will pay off the clerk to do a little magic with the guest records. So they'll have, you know, something on paper. Yeah, like a hotel receipt, and then the clerk willing to testify. Like, that's a pretty solid thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sweet Candy Pants sets it up. She has her friend Sam come to make the arrangements. And he, through talking to Barbara, gets her to admit that Baxter Shorter has been, quote, well taken care of, but he can never quite get the specifics. This is when she's implying a lot that he's dead, but never saying it outright. Yeah, she she was like, don't worry, he won't appear in court. Yeah. He's not testifying, don't worry. He also <laughs> gets her to admit that she was with the four guys the night of the murder. The Weasel, Santos, True, and Baxter McCoy. The trial comes, August 1953. They're all on trial together, and according to writer Clark Howard, the judge is like, this is the judge. He was, quote, a living legend in criminal jurisprudence. Ooh. Living legend. That's maybe not so much what you want when you're the one on trial. No. The state's theory is that the murder was committed out of vengeance for Mabel not telling them where she kept that $10,000. It comes out that there were no fingerprints from any of the three at the crime scene. The coroner testifies, and then afterwards, Barbara actually gets dizzy while being escorted to her cell and breaks her ankle in a fall. And so the trial has to be postponed for like a week. So that's also when she starts bringing up the, the steel plate. Yeah. Well, I feel like she fell down the steps. Yeah. Yeah. But then some of the newspapers were basically like, ah, this dramatic woman, <laughs> like, she fell and hurt herself. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, give her at least a little bit of leeway. 
So John True testifies, and actually security has to be really, really tight that day because there had been threats made against him, specifically involving a napalm bomb. Oh. Yeah. Fancy. That's scary. So John True says in his testimony that when he walked in to Mabel's house, Barbara was pistol whipping Mabel. And then the weasel tied her up and tossed her in the closet. Barbara put the pillowcase over her head. Santo tied it around her neck. And in, you know, the spirit of trying to make himself look good, John True says he cut a hole in the pillowcase to try to let Mabel breathe. Despite all this, he doesn't really fare well in the press. Uh, They called him, quote, an overgrown boob. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then didn't he also try to make himself seem like he was, like, the nice guy? He was like, I held her head in my lap. I was so scared for her. Yes, yes. He's, I, I think he said that's how he got, that's how he got blood on his pants. Of course. He's just, he's this white knight in his version of the story. And we all know it, it, it definitely didn't happen that way. Yeah. <laughs> One way or the other. We don't know exactly how it happened because of the competing versions. But I'm sure that any criminal who gets on the stand... I did nothing. I asked them to stop. I said, please stop. Please, sir. So then along comes Sam. Sam of the alibi. And Barbara, when he comes in to testify. All right. We don't have necessarily a picture of her at that moment. We do have a description. Mrs. Graham didn't recognize him at first, but did a double take, bit her lip, and fought to keep down her mounting color when he gave his name, the same name he had given her, because he was an undercover policeman. He tells the jury everything Barbara told him when they were planning for him to set up an alibi for her, and then he reveals that the conversations were recorded, which uh, the papers refer to the, the tape recorder as a Dick Tracy recording device. Dick Tracy recording device. Yes. It's a dictograph. (laughs) Dictograph. We do have a picture of the moment she realized it had all been recorded and a transcript was read. And she looks shook, let me tell you. She looks like she's just seen the ghost of every mistake she's ever made in her life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're all haunting her at that exact moment. During this, Santo turned to the weasel and said... This is what we get for having a goddamned woman with us. And, of course, sure enough, Sweet Candy Pants was released from jail and immediately hightailed it out of town, likely out of the state. Smart. Yeah. Smart. So Barbara takes the stand. She uh, confesses to her past, but in a prim, indirect, 1950s sort of way. She says, quote, I knew a few people, and I have occasion to meet people who like to gamble, and I took them to the El Monte, which is the weasel's gambling house. Now she changes her alibi, since it's been pretty much blown to hell by showing that she had intended to set up a fake one. She says she was at home fighting with her husband the night of the murder. They were fighting about him not having a job. She has a couple of friends who had seen or heard the argument, but Henry had fled the state, so he's not going to be able to back her up there. One of the friends testifies about witnessing the fight. And then the state tries to blow up that alibi by bringing in two ambulance drivers who said that they had taken her to the hospital for treatment that day. But it doesn't make any sense because they actually took her to the hospital and then drove her home as well the same day. 
and the times that they took her to and from the hospital are all before the murder was supposed to have happened. So she very well could have witnessed a fight had there been one. Yeah. And the friend comes back to the stand to show via her calendar that she hadn't visited the hospital that day. So it's it's all very weird and tangled and confusing. Okay, so she's trying to provide a false alibi, and then somebody came with an, a reason, a false reason, that she was not there for the false thing that already happened. So just basically, at this point, everybody's lying, and it's a soap opera. Yeah, it's very strange. There's also some missing records regarding the, the ambulance in the hospital. Shocking. Yeah, it's all very weird. So, and then everyone's nightmare, but also juicy drama. Um, so... They read Barbara's letters to Sweet Candy Pants on the stand. She says, do you have to read that letter out loud? Some tidbits. I do love you, but I want you to be sure of your feelings before we start something we can't stop. And another one. I do love you, honey. You are so lovely and desirable, sweetheart. I want so much to show you how I love you. I am sure I can make you happy. And uh, this I have in my notes preceded by OMG. The cell note that finally wore a rip in the icy blonde's poker face was preceded by another startler, exhibit number 69. (laughs) Of course. Of course. course. That one is addressed to Sweet Candy Pants, and she also called uh, Donna Baby Doll, which just... Takes the whole mommy thing and makes it even worse. Yep, don't like it. Don't like it. Don't like it. I don't like it. So she admits on the stand that in one note to Candy Pants, I'm starting to feel ridiculous saying it, but I'm not going to stop. So in one note to Candy Pants where she assured her that Shorter would not show up at the trial, she admits that she was referring to him because she had tried to make it seem like she was saying in the note that Henry wouldn't show up at the trial and reassuring Donna of that because Donna was afraid of Henry, something along those lines. Then they finally get her to admit that, no, she was talking about Shorter. And uh, she says to the prosecuting attorney, have you ever been desperate? Do you know what it is? So it seems like she's saying, well, yeah, I tried to set up a fake alibi and I I said that, you know, like Shorter wasn't going to be there, but I was desperate. And that doesn't mean I committed the crime. I was desperate because I've been accused of the crime. Yeah. So, as usual, when one testifies for oneself, it does not go well. One account says that her co-defendants wouldn't speak to or look at her for the rest of the trial, but there are pictures in the newspaper of them talking that were taken after this point. So, I, I think that's bullshit. Yeah. I'm not saying they were on super friendly terms and the guys were probably, as soon as they found out Barbara was going to take the stand, they were like, oh crap, (laughs) that's not going to go well. And it didn't. The weasel had multiple alibi witnesses testify and all of them had conflicting alibis. Everybody was like, he he was at my house. No, he was with me. With me. Yeah, it's really, that's that's also very bad. (laughs) Um, Santo has one alibi witness for himself That all gets wrecked when either yet another undercover agent or possibly a truck salesman, who knows, maybe both, steps up to reveal that Santos's alibi witness had lied and had actually told him, the undercover agent slash truck salesman, about the lie. So everybody's blabbing to undercover agents left and right, up and down, sideways, diagonal, 
it, it's it's insane how many undercover agents they, they had to have the whole entire damn police force going undercover into everybody's lives right yeah. that alibi witness that got blown up was not literally um I mean, we did bring up napalm bombs, so I feel the need to specify. Yeah, just in case. Yeah, that was Santos's common-law wife, who uh, immediately after leaving the stand was arrested for driving the getaway car in a separate robbery with Santos and the weasel. There you go. Oh, and she'd also offered the undercover cop-slash-truck salesman money to do away with one of the witnesses. Oh. Yeah, not going well. No, no, not... There are undercover cops everywhere. Yeah, really. So the prosecution finishes with a flourish, calling them the unholy trio. The jury of nine men and three women deliberates for a whopping five hours. That's really impressive. In old-timey times? Yes. That is that is all, possibly a record. Could be. In old-timey deliberations. They come back with a guilty verdict for all three, and they are sentenced to death in the gas chamber. One modern account has Barbara getting very emotional and crying uncontrollably, but the papers have her being quite calm, almost like icy, until she was taken away, and then when she got into the hallway, she she lost it. She said to her attorney, As long as they found me guilty of something I didn't do, I'd rather take the gas chamber than life imprisonment. And then when she was on her way out and freaking out, she said, I can't believe it, I just wasn't there. The jurors will not talk to the press, so we don't really know anything about how their deliberations went. But also, good on you for not releasing jurors' names, as we've seen in the past. Yeah, and, you know, addresses and occupations, work addresses, you know, children's names, social security numbers, whatever. So (laughs) we're starting to see a little bit more of the modern sensibility here with the longer deliberation time and not, you know, outing the jurors to the press. That's nice. So there were automatic appeals at the state level and the federal level. No change in the sentence. They didn't have a whole lot to appeal on, really. So they were officially scheduled for execution on June 3rd, 1955. Henry Graham had come back and reunited with their son, Tommy, and brought him to visit Barbara. And he had just turned three when she was headed to the gas chamber. So he was brought to say goodbye there was actually some really sweet pictures of, of her just holding him. There were, yeah. So she insisted that she intended to die like a lady. And it seemed like she might have been able to. But for one thing, actually two things. And those were telephone calls from the governor's office delaying the execution. Like, as she's about to go into the chamber, they're like, wait, wait, wait. Governor says delay it. So I actually have a really cool little conversation from this morning that, that this was happening. She had a hot fudge sundae for breakfast, Aww. and she's still wearing her red silk pajamas, and she's chain-smoking camels, and uh, there was she had a Death Watch matron with her, mm-hmm. right? And she goes, I can't believe I only have four hours to live. I can't believe it. The matron goes, well, maybe something will happen. Maybe you'll get a stay of execution. And Barbara responds, oh, sure. I never got a break in my whole goddamn life, and you think I'm going to get one now? Not a chance, lady. Not a chance in hell. I do kind of adore her statements. I do. (laughs) 
So yeah, the thing is, is that there is kind of a break, but it's actually not for the better because as she's mentally prepared herself for this, then there's this uncertainty and these delays and that sends her into a tailspin. So at first she's all like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to go to go to my death with dignity. And then the delays kick in and she's like, oh, mm, crap, you know, like starts having severe anxiety about it and freaking out. So that happens twice. And those were actually due to last minute emergency appeals filed by her attorney that sort of forced the governor's office to say, hey, wait, we need to look into this one little thing. And so it's a, quite a, a delay between when she's initially brought down to the gas chamber when they actually put her in. And so she's pretty much lost her composure. One of the executioners tells her as he's leaving the chamber, count to 10 after you hear the cyanide tablets drop and then take a deep breath. It's easier that way. And her reply to him is, how the hell would you know? <laughs> Which is very true. Well, he's been to a lot of executions and I'm sure he's seen it a lot and, and sees that the people that fight it extend it. Yeah, that might be true. Yeah. Her last words are recorded as, good people are always so sure they're right. So the one, the one detail that we missed here is she was actually wearing a blindfold the whole time and she had a, a fancy suit on. She looked like she was going out to a fancy lunch. But she asked for the blindfold from her cell to the gas chamber because I don't want to watch those sons of bitches watch me die. Yeah. And I love that. And so, like, two priests are leading her down, and she's blindfolded. And, like, I don't know if you watched the that scene from the movie. I watched the trailer for the movie. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that um, one account that I read had her actually kind of forgetting about the idea of witnesses until she got down there. And then she was like, oh, my God, I, I don't want to watch these bastards watch me die. And so she asked for a blindfold, and the matron was like, I have a sleep mask. I don't know why the matron had to sleep. Was it for that purpose of, of like just like blindfolding people? Yeah, so that was definitely in the movie that she had a sleep mask. Okay. Um, but th that's the sources very wildly thing yeah. because I had that they just had it. Nobody really ever asked for it. But in case anybody wanted to be like not seeing mm -hmm. when that happened. But yeah, like because in, in the movie, the matron was like, I have a sleep mask. I'm like, are you fucking napping? What? <laughs> yeah. Do you do you sleep here? Do you live here? What's happening? Do you have a bedroom? <laughs> she might. Maybe she just naps in an empty cell. Who yeah. knows? So she was the third woman executed in the gas chamber in California, and she was 31. Marquez Vickers in uh, the book Rage and Revenge Murders in California says, quote, her life was a succession of poor choices and occasionally unintentional funny quotes. I think that doesn't give her enough credit. I think she actually knows that she's kind of funny. <laughs> I think she does, too. Yeah. She is She is kind of funny. She knows she's got an attitude. She's had an attitude since the reformatory and probably before that. Yeah. She's not, like, completely in the dark about the fact that she has an attitude. So, Santos and Perkins are next. They sat side by side and just kind of casually talked while all the preparations were made. Like, you know, so, uh, so how about that weather? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. They were, like, joking around and, and just like, yeah, whatever, we're going to die. It doesn't matter. This is fine. Yeah, yeah. And the death chamber officers were closing the door and Santos yells out, don't you fellows do nothing I wouldn't do. Right? I mean, that list is vanishingly small. John True would last another few years 
before he was killed uh, in a boat crash on the Mississippi in 1958. Oh, I had a shipping accident at work. That's weird. Hmm. Well, boats ship things. Maybe, yeah. maybe he was working on a boat that was shipping things. I don't know. <laughs> could be. Could be. And a lot of other people died, too. Yeah. This is like a cursed case. It really is. Yeah. There was one of the witnesses, Upshaw, and he died, I believe, in a car wreck, I think? Fatal car accident. Defense lawyer Jack Hardy had a heart attack one month after Barbara was uh, executed. Oh, my God. Tudor Bacon died of apoplexy in 1958. Another heart attack got Warden Teats the same year. And uh, Judge Frick died of cancer. Upshaw died just weeks after that. And then officially Baxter Shorter pronounced dead. Wow. This is like, you know, the stories about the cast of the poltergeist being cursed, <laughs> except real. My God, it really is. All these people are just like dropping dead. Yeah. Wow. So the movie was released in 1958. It's called I Want to Live! Exclamation point. It very much leans towards the theory that Barbara was innocent, starred Susan Hayward, and was essentially kind of written for her. She got an Academy Award for it, and the movie was also nominated for five other Academy Awards. And I highly recommend the trailer, at the very least, for its over-the-top drama. Did you watch the whole movie or just the trailer? I just watched the death scene. Okay, all right. She's not just chewing the scenery. She's, she's gobbling it whole. <laughs> I mean, there's... There's acting, and then there's this. <laughs> it is quite something to watch. There's a character in the film who's playing the reporter. I think it's Ed Montgomery. Yes. Playing that reporter who did extensive coverage of the case. There's a quote from him that I think is a good uh, note to finish on. It's Mrs. Graham's tough luck to be young, attractive, belligerent, immoral, and guilty as hell. I don't think she was guilty. I at least, I, I think she was there. Oh, she was there. Yeah. For sure. I don't believe the, the pistol whipping, I don't believe she took as active a part in... I think she got the door open. Mm-hmm. And I think that was probably about it. Probably ransacked a little bit, too. I mean, you look at these men who have a history of, of killing people. Violence. Yes. Including children. Beating children to death. And you say, oh, but Barbara was the one who did all the pistol whipping and everything. That just seems off to me. I think, all right, here's what I think happened. So they use her as the, the pretty trustworthy face to get them through the door. She was quite attractive. She seemed like she could, you know, put on a, a very sweet attitude when she wanted to. And then the people who testify against her, like John True, he wants to make sure that the men don't get off because of Barbara's involvement, because all three are being tried together. And if Barbara gets off, they might get off or they might get reduced sentences or something like that. The people who testify, they want them wiped off the earth. And the best way to do that is to implicate Barbara as heavily as possible to make sure that the jury doesn't have a chance to say, oh, well, you know, but she's a woman. She's a young mother. You know, we can't give them the death penalty because when you testify against violent people, if they become free, they will come and be violent against you, as we see with Baxter Shorter. <laughs> And I think my biggest issue with this is they should never have been tried together. Yes, absolutely. I, I believe that 100%. They should not have been tried together. And I think if they were all tried separately, that things would have played out much different. Much different. I, don't, I think those stories would have changed. I don't think people would have been implicating Barbara. Because, yes, she was there. Yes, she was an accomplice. Uh, accomplice. 
rubbing off on me. She was an accomplished accomplice. There you go. Oh my God, <laughs> say that five times fast. Yeah. But so yeah, she like she was definitely there. She definitely had a hand in it. But like, I don't think she actually physically hurt anybody. Absolutely agree. She didn't have that history of violence that they did. And the people who testified had every reason to make it seem like she was violent. So, yeah. I don't. I feel so bad for her son in all of this. Yes, yes. I, I did try to track him down. Unfortunately, there was a uh, either jockey or horse trainer, I couldn't quite tell from the, the horse racing sections of the newspaper, named Tommy Graham in California during this period. <laughs> so, yeah. pretty impossible to track him down. But you know, let the kid live his life. Well, and I think that's what happened. So I did find a picture when Tommy was about five. Um, they had gone to court. I don't I don't know if it was to like sign over his rights to the movie or something mm. like that or to get him just like removed from it. And I kind of got the feeling that after that he might have had a name change. It sounds probably likely because with all that publicity, especially with an Academy Award winning film, it, that association would be a lot longer lasting than with the court case. Court cases, you know, come and go. Executions happen, and then people kind of, we have short memories, and other stuff pops up, and we forget. But movies, entertainment, especially when Susan Hayward is, like, eating the set, that's kind of gets stuck in the public consciousness. But I will say this. So from the picture, when he was five, he he had a cute little suit on, and he looked Aww. pretty happy. He was with his dad, holding his dad's hand, and his dad actually looked maybe sober. So I, I hope that he got a good life out of all of that to break that cycle. It did seem like, in the, at least in the aftermath of the execution, that Henry Graham was, was trying to get sober and be there for his son. So that was, that was good, at least. So yeah, that's Silver much. lining. Yeah. So that is Barbara Graham, a.k.a. Bloody Babs. Bloody Babs. A.k.a. Mommy. Go to hell, Hortense. <laughs> Go to hell, Hortense. Absolutely. 100%. All right. So are you ready for a horrifying recipe? Always. Actually, two. Oh, okay. I, I don't know if you're supposed to serve these with each other, which just makes it all the more horrifying, but they're kind of part of the same article. So baked oyster dish. Our fine Pacific oysters will taste wonderful in this recipe, which your foods editor was served down in Dallas recently. For each serving, arrange six oysters in a ramekin or individual casserole. Cover with Thousand Island dressing and then with a sharp grated cheese. Place in a hot oven for about seven minutes or until oysters are puffed and cheese is melted. Special! That's gross, but I don't like oysters. Yeah, I don't like oysters either. I'm going to find that gross no matter what. All right, here we go. And this one is called Salad Reminder. Bet you've not done this one in ages. It is still a favorite with many. Arrange plain orange slices and plain onion slices in fan fashion on a lettuce leaf and serve with a tart French dressing. Why? Why? Why are we putting oranges and onions together? Okay. So I'm allergic to oranges and you don't eat onions. Exactly. So we would never try this one. Never. But I will say this. I enjoy onions and I have made onion and pear grilled cheese sandwiches and it was delicious. See, I want to vomit, though. <laughs> so sometimes fruit can go with onions. I, I won't know about that one just because I can't eat oranges uh, because I, I like to breathe. Um, Breathing is fun. It's good. But there are definitely instances where they go together. I mean, like, I, I just put apples in with my, my sauerkraut and my pork for New Year's because apples and pork go to, 
together and cabbage and what the hell ever. Just throw it all together. I had some apples I had to use up. It happens. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so, like, I mean, sometimes when you sit down and you list off the ingredients of things that you've made, it's, it might sound gross, but be okay. I think that one's probably just gross. But I'm trying to give it, like, I'm trying to argue, like, log cabin, benefit of the doubt, <laughs> that maybe it was okay. You're being the devil's advocate for, for some people. Orange onion French dressing salad. <laughs> so I had I had a, a Super Bowl party one year, and it was uh, just a bunch of different grilled cheese sandwiches, right? Mm-hmm. And that was what I did, and I would I would cut them up into like a quarter of a sandwich, and so everyone would try it. I wouldn't actually tell anyone what was in it unless they were allergic to something, mm-hmm. because if I list off the ingredients, you're gonna be like what the fuck? <laughs> so I didn't say it. I'm like, just try it. And then I'll tell you what's in it. Mm-hmm. And it worked out great. And honestly, they were all delicious. Even though some of them were a little funky. You would have had to tell me about the onions. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't have made you one with onions. Yeah. Yeah. You know better. <laughs> so, okay. We would like to welcome to the Patreon new supporting members, Stephen Daniel and Lorraine Williams. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Lorraine. <laughs> now, anybody who listened way back in the day might remember that I've uh, done some work for a photographer. Frogtographer. Frogtographer, yes. Frog wrangling. And uh, I'm hoping Steve doesn't mind. I'm going to put the link to his site so people can go look at his, uh, his photography, frogtography. I got to frog wrangle once. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was super fun. It is fun. It's a little nerve-wracking at times. <laughs> I actually, I have I have some of uh, Stephen's work up in my house. So Ask you what. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you, and welcome to the Patreon. And so, thank you for supporting us. Thank you to all of our other patrons for supporting us. You, too, can support us. Just follow the link in the show notes, and you'll get access to so much you can binge. Uh, Don't forget to put us on a Spotify playlist of some of your favorite true crime uh, episodes. Pick an episode, and we'd be really excited if you came over to our social media on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We are oldtimeycrimey. And if you want to post there uh, with your playlist and and link to it, that would be great to to share your love of true crime across genres. You know, well, across genres. No, it's all one genre. Uh, Share your love of true crime with... You know, your fellow old-timey crimey fans and us, too. Well, I'm always open to learning about new podcasts that I haven't heard yet. So, yeah, there's that. And also, again, you can rate us on Spotify, just like you can rate us on iTunes and uh, some by some mysterious way that nobody can quite figure out on Stitcher. Um, And if you figure it out, maybe just tell us how. (laughs) Let us know. And also tell your friends about us. And don't forget about merch. Links in the show notes. I need to make merch with our new logo. Thank you, Katie Sikelski, for once again making a new logo for us. Thanks, Katie. No one has ever uh, had such repeat business for logos from one customer. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that's not all of my bullshit, but that's all I feel like right now. So, uh, so Amber, what you doing this week? I am um, still working on converting my basement into a giant playroom. So yeah, that's really that's really all I got is work and making life fun. It looks really fun. It, it looks does. really fun <laughs> from the pictures you've shown me. <laughs> I have a putting green. I've got a basketball game. I've got Dance Dance Revolution. I have a rock climbing wall with that is also a tent. Uh, the kids got pretty pimped out this year, so we're just <laughs> making it like a whole adventure. That is really fun. 
uh, I don't really know what I'm doing this week. I'm gonna, well, my New Year's resolution is, uh, because again, last year I was like, don't set yourself up for failure. Make your New Year's resolution something that you not only can do, but will enjoy doing. And so it was take a lot of baths. And I decided that was so successful that, uh, yep. Just, just gonna do it again. Just gonna do it again, yep. Gonna take a lot of baths. So yeah, I'll probably take like at least a couple baths this week. And just in general doing some old-timey crummy stuff, looking on those old uh, newspapers, finding interesting cases for us, and sometimes just perusing. And also, uh, I have, I'm helping out with a, a family genealogy, family tree project, uh, completing the 11th generation of my, awesome. the Baxter book, which is our uh, paternal side's history. And so I'm going to be doing some work on that researching because I found some pretty neat stuff so far. That is super cool. It is very strange that in the 1920s, when my grandfather was in high school, they uh, had in the paper little class notes, they called it, with like, you know, each class, somebody would write up little in-jokes and little notices and information. But it was a lot of it was like teasing and gossip. And apparently my grandfather was just perpetually late for school because anytime he showed up there, it was generally jokes about him being late for school. <laughs> and so nobody knew that. And so I was able to show my whole family, like, look, Grandpa, incredibly successful businessman when he, you know, got into his, his later years, was always late for school. Slept in. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's some things I come by, honestly. <laughs> that's one of them. Totally <laughs> fair. So, so, yeah, that's all our stuff. Uh, we hope you have an incredible weekend. And thank you for joining us. And thanks for uh, being cool with the hiatus. I always have a hard time stepping away, and that's why I still put stuff up on the yeah. feed. But it, it was good to have a little bit of a break. So, so yes, thank you for joining us. And, um, yeah, just don't call people mommy unless they're your actual mommy. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, a special request from us to you. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are capitalpunishmentuk.org. Rage and Revenge Murders in California by Marquez Vickers. Marks Vickers? I've never, I'm not really sure. Uh, Girls on the Rampage by Wenzel Brown. Brown. Clark. Clark Howard on the climb. Motherfucker. <laughs> oh. That tea is taking you the wrong direction. It really is. I'm not drinking this tea ever again. <laughs> not while we record. Clark Howard on the Crime Library, accessed via Murderpedia, Robert Walsh on Crime Scribe, and from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, the San Francisco Examiner, the Valley Times, the LA Daily News, and the Mirror News. I managed to not mess up any of the last parts because I talked like a robot. Human. 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 <laughs> I am human. My sources this week were Murderpedia, Crimescribe.com, New York Daily News, thank you Mara Bobson, PleaseKillMe.com by Alan Bisbort, and, <laughs> and CapitalPunishmentUK.org. Oh my god. Please kill me. PleaseKillMe.com. That's what I say when I can't talk throughout the whole episode. PleaseKillMe.com. Oh, okay. Ha, 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 ha.